0: The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C E M E N T dot media. This episode of the Structural Engineering Channel is brought to you by PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the PE Structural Exam. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the PE structural exam the first time. PPI's PE structural course is fully updated and taught with October 2021 code references and includes new editions of their PE structural books. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. When you take a live online course, PPI guarantees you will pass or you can take the on-demand course for free. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all of the resources available for PE Structural Exam Prep. Again, that's ppi2pass.com.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we are talking to Joe Muffet, an internationally recognized expert on seismic evaluation design and retrofitting structures about the SFO air traffic control tower for which their company, Maffei Engineering, also received an Excellence Award. He talks about their involvement in the project and how they designed the first-ever control tower that used a nonlinear analysis, performance-based seismic design. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Joe. Joe, first, welcome to the show. In your own words, can you please tell our listeners more about yourself and what you do on the day-to-day basis at Maffei Structural Engineering?
2: I'm a structural engineer and the founding principal of Maffei Structural Engineering. We're a firm of about 14 people now. We started in 2013. We're located in San Francisco. Our firm focuses on seismic work. We uh, do a lot of expert based work. Uh, We do a lot of advanced types of analysis, performance based design or non prescriptive design is another word for it. And that uses nonlinear analysis frequently. We also do seismic peer review, the review of other engineers. We do a lot of seismic retrofitting, seismic evaluation. We have a segment of our work that works on uh, renewable energy structures and the support structures for solar panels. One of the features of our firm is is sort of outside the box kind of work. We don't do uh, that much repetitive work. If it's a hard problem, we've got a team that likes those.
3: I wanted to talk about the San Francisco tower. From what I understand, it was the first control tower that used a nonlinear analysis performance-based design approach. Before we dive into that, can you explain to our listeners that may not be too familiar with performance-based design or nonlinear analysis, I believe, I think mostly in school, especially if they haven't went to grad school, they may just be familiar with linear. Can you go into nonlinear analysis a bit and explain to our listeners that aren't too familiar with that?
2: Most designs are according to the requirements of the building code. And the review and acceptability of those designs is, did you meet the rules stated in the building code? And those rules are, quote, prescriptive. They tell you what to do and what not to do. They prescribe what is required. So non-prescriptive design means that you take advantage of the parts of the building code that says you can do alternate designs if you demonstrate at least equivalent performance in the International building code, I think it's section 101.14, but you might have to check on that. So you take advantage of the parts of the building code that allow alternate methods. So they're still code-compliant designs, but they comply with the code through the non-prescriptive approach. It's sometimes called performance-based design because what you're really demonstrating is that you've got equivalent performance. And that's equivalent performance to a code prescriptive design and hopefully also equivalent performance to the intentions of the building code. That is often a win-win way to design a structure for earthquakes. In other words, because you're doing this more explicit analysis and you're evaluating performance, you've got more reliable performance. You know what your structure is going to do when the big earthquake comes along. In prescriptive design, you meet the rules of the code, but you don't really ever stop and say, how is this building exactly going to perform? Or you're not required to. There are many cases where performance-based design will lead you to economy because you can take exception, basically, to prescriptive parts of the code that aren't really helping your structure and that are making the structure, say, more expensive or more difficult to construct.
1: I have a quick question about that, especially for performance based and the design that y'all do. Do y'all look at, because when you say prescriptive, I know it's with the building code, and the building code, of course, is based on research, but a lot of times it's research that's been done year over year over year. And it's, you know, as you said, it's just kind of like the basic. So, how much? New research do y'all adopt into your designs? Because I feel like that would be really interesting is staying up to date on, you know, the recent research that can come about, of course, that all of the educational entities do.
2: Another part of my background is I I have spent a lot of time in those hotel conference rooms where the building code gets made. 30 years ago, people would say those were smoke-filled rooms, but we don't smoke in the conference rooms anymore. Certainly it takes a while for the technology transfer to happen. You know, research is happening today and it it can take a very long time. And I did my PhD in New Zealand where well prior to my arrival there in the 70s, even back to the 1960s, they did some groundbreaking research on say concrete wall structures. Here's an example of that interesting path from research to practice. So New Zealanders did research that followed from, say, research by Bloom, Newmark, and Corning in the 60s at, uh, say, Portland Cement Association. And they studied concrete walls, and they developed some ideas and some practices for concrete walls. The Canadian Code had some good collaboration with the New Zealanders, and they adopted principles for concrete wall structures in the Canadian Code. They didn't have a height limit. They required flexural behavior. They looked at how you detailed coupling beams in concrete walls, things like that. ACI was slower to adopt that, and they built many high-rise buildings in the high seismic area, of, you know, of Vancouver, Canada. And then some of the engineers working there started building high-rise buildings in the Seattle area, and they said, "Well, why is there this height limit?" Why do you need to have a dual system? A few miles north in Canada, we don't need to do that. And so there were a couple of above height limit concrete wall buildings done. And the first one that I got involved in, I want to say was 1999. It was an excellent Vancouver firm called Jones Kwong Kishi that did it. James Mutry was the engineer there. And it was in the city of Bellevue. And They did a nonlinear response history analysis. The software available at that time was called Drain 2D. It was actually a two-dimensional model. They showed that this design would meet all of the requirements, and, and we went through that process early on. And I was the seismic peer reviewer. That was kind of at the beginning of when seismic peer review became a thing. And it was interesting. It was fascinating to learn, you know, what this analysis, this nonlinear analysis would tell you about the building. The next one we did was Washington Mutual uh, High Rise, which is connected to the Seattle Art Museum. So that's in Seattle. Magnus and Clemensic Associates did that. And, and I worked with Ron Clemensic to peer review that. That one was pretty interesting because at that time, we finally had uh, a piece of software called Perform. It was three-dimensional. And we learned some more things about that. And in that project, you know, we had to ask the question, at that time, you could do three analysis runs and take the maximum, or you could do seven and take the average. So just to step back a little bit and talk about when you do a nonlinear response history analysis, you are basically taking ground motions that are applicable to the site. And so an earthquake happens, uh, a ground motion is, is recorded. By now, there's tens of thousands of ground motions that have been picked up by seismographs around the world. Some of those have some pretty strong shaking, right? Earthquakes in Turkey, earthquakes in Taiwan, and so forth. You're taking those recorded motions, you're selecting the ones that are most appropriate for the site where you are. There's ways you can amplify them, modify them. and then You're running a selected set, and now we do 11 motions as a minimum generally for building structures. For each motion that you run, you have an analysis model of your building, which engineers are familiar with. You have the walls, you have the gravity system typically, you have floor diaphragms, things like that. Instead of doing a static analysis where you put on forces and you get reactions and you get deflections and it's one shot or a response spectrum analysis where it's a little bit similar, but you take elastic mode shapes and you combine them, you are taking every, say, one hundredth of a second of that, say, 40 seconds of earthquake, and you're running a separate analysis every hundredth of a second, and you're monitoring what happens to every structural element in your analysis model that represents the building. That's the process. When we started doing this, you did nonlinear response history analysis at the design level earthquake. And there was, you know, like about a paragraph or two about it in the building code. And it said, take the worst of three runs or the average of seven. It's, you know, interesting because from real projects, you come up with rules, those rules make their way into guidelines, and then, you know, eventually they make their way into the building code. One of the things we said is okay we have a principle and this is going back to the new zealand thing a principle of capacity design we know that a tall concrete wall is good if it'll behave in flexure and not have a shear failure that would concentrate all the deformation in one story we say okay we can't have a shear failure and we want flexural behavior we've run seven runs and we took this design for the washington mutual tower We looked at the output for the seven runs, and we looked at how much shear there was, and there was a tremendous variation in the amount of shear. What you learn is that every ground motion does something different to these buildings. We were generally okay with this idea, if you've done seven, let's look at the average demand, right? And we think that's still appropriate for actions that have ductility, actions that are intended to be yielding actions. By actions, I mean flexure, shear, axial load, things like that. For actions that are not supposed to be part of the yielding, you have to really make sure that those things don't happen. So for the example of the concrete core wall building, if you just design for the average shear, you're saying that in three or four of those seven runs, the building is failing in shear. And in fact, that means your analysis model is not even working because in those days, you modeled it assuming flexural behavior. We had to say right away, well, wait a minute, how are we going to deal with this? And you have to design for the very worst of those motions? And so we started doing something like the second worst or a mean plus standard deviation of the demands. And so that has now found its way into traditional building codes. So it's really defining different criteria for parts of the structure that you intend to, to yield. And I like to just call those nonlinear actions, but the code has used the word displacement controlled actions. And those things that you would like to remain elastic, and those can be called capacity protected actions, which means when the yielding happens, this is the maximum force that that yielding can deliver. And so those are also called force controlled actions. So that's just an example of nonlinear analysis and how that concept got started. The other thing that we decided, you know, there was this thing called the maximum credible earthquake earthquake which then became the maximum considered earthquake, called the MCE. That was the upper level of earthquake that was discussed in the building code. It was introduced partly to look at things like seismically isolated structures. But people did all their calculations at the design level, which was kind of, by definition, about two-thirds of the maximum considered level. And so when we did that first peer review of a tall building and performance-based structure in 1999, they did their Drain 2D analysis at the design earthquake level, and it, and it produced all of that knowledge that you get from a nonlinear response history analysis. When it came to the Washington Mutual building in 2002, we said, you know, we have this higher level earthquake. You're doing a nonlinear analysis that tries to evaluate explicitly the nonlinear behavior, and we talk about in the code that we really design at this design level, but at this level 1.5 times higher, we want to make sure there's no collapse. We said, doesn't it make sense to do the nonlinear analysis at the earthquake level that's going to have the most nonlinearity, so the maximum consider earthquake level? And so that made its way into some tall building guidelines, uh, one that I helped write in for the city of San Francisco. And now that's standard in the code. You always have to look at that maximum considered earthquake level. So that's some of the background of performance-based design. There's more we could talk about differences of what you learn between linear and nonlinear analysis.
1: This is actually going back to Matt's question and the tower, the SFO tower that you worked on. From what I understand, the tower was uses vertical post-tensioning to provide some sort of self-centering action in the event of a major earthquake. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe other unique aspects to the structure? Anything that you can share with our listeners, really? That's right. Vertical post-tensioning has
2: been used in seismic systems for some time.
1: So vertical
2: post-tensioning in uh, a concrete structure is very interesting. Uh, There's been research on it. The earliest research, I think, was done by NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And then Professor Nigel Priestley at UC San Diego, another New Zealander, tested a five-story building with vertically post-tensioned walls. So it's like, you know, you have a rubber band stretched inside your concrete wall and it displaces and the tendons pull it back. So the idea behind vertically post-tensioned structures, and it's been done in precast structures, it's been done in timber structures. The New Zealanders have taken timber walls and put vertical post-tensioning in them. The idea is that you don't have displacement after the earthquake. Earthquakes impose displacement on structures. They move the tops of buildings, particularly tall buildings. What you would really like is for after the earthquake is done for the building to be exactly back where it was. That's achieved through unbonded vertical post-tensioning. And so the post-tensioning is in a duct through the height of the wall, not bonded. And the reason it's not bonded is as the wall displaces laterally, all the strain in the tendon that elongates it is distributed over the full length of the tendon. Some important structures have have used that, and we thought that it was a good choice for the control tower. Let me uh, explain my role with the San Francisco Airport Air Traffic Control Tower. At the time that project began, I was working for Rutherford and Chikin, and we were the uh, structural engineer responsible for the seismic design for what was called the 45% design. And after the 45% design, it was handed off to a design builder. HNTB led the 45% design. They're an architecture firm that did a lot of airport structures. Project was led by Joe Grogan as the architect. And they had uh, structural engineers that did the gravity design for the 45% design. Then eventually the project got handed over to a design build team under Hansel Phelps, Fentress Architects, and Walter P. Moore, who was the structural engineer of record. And at that time, because it was performance-based design and there needed to be a seismic peer reviewer, and that hadn't been well-established for design build, but it made sense for everyone that my firm, by that time I had my own firm, my firm would be the seismic peer reviewer of the implementation of that design. So that was how I was involved with that project for the many years of its conception. So air traffic control towers are essential facilities, clearly. The controllers are up there. It can be a stressful job, certainly. And in an earthquake, airports can be important. It's how you get supplies in and many things, and you want the airport to still be operational. Airports have gone out in earthquakes. In the 1964 Anchorage, Alaska earthquake, there was a relatively short control tower of concrete that completely collapsed and killed uh, one or two people inside. Very unfortunate. This clearly had to be functioning for high wind, for the comfort of the controllers in wind, and for earthquakes. And it's close to the San Andreas Fault, maybe four kilometers from the San Andreas Fault. Just to make it more fun, it's on a site of very soft soil. San Francisco. <laughs> which can be, <laughs> in case it was getting too easy, right? We jumped in right away and... Air traffic control towers are designed and funded by the Federal Aviation Administration, but in cooperation with the airport facility. And you know San Francisco, being a major airport with a lot of structures, they designed you know their international terminal with seismic isolation, a project by Skidmore Owens and Merrill. They were sophisticated about seismic. And there are some very good engineers at the FAA. The engineer that kind of ran the project was Mark Brandewe, who has a mechanical engineering degree by training. But they had never done a performance-based design. And pretty much the majority of tall structures in California and Seattle and in Utah these days are using performance-based design. Those that are above, say, 160 or 240 feet, the height limits of the code. The question arose: Are you guys up for doing performance-based design on this? To me, it it totally made sense. And the airport also uh, had uh, Jeff Newmeyer, who's still there, who has a background in structural engineering, and he said, "Yeah, definitely." So the airport at SFO was all in. FAA made the adjustment to their thinking, and they were in on that idea. So we actually looked at seismic isolation. We looked at mid-height seismic isolation. So in other words, letting the cab move with respect to the tower, which is kind of a fascinating way to do something. There were some logistics there, but we settled on a concrete core structure with vertical post tensioning to get the recentering. Then there were a couple of other innovative things that we did with that. One of the questions is you have this tall structure and what are its performance limits? In this case, You want it after the design earthquake to be fully operational. All the equipment working, everybody in and out, landing planes, all of that. Assuming the runways are okay and other things that are okay, but the the air traffic controllers should still be standing. One of the things to understand was story drift is an issue in structures, but this is a structure without a separate gravity system because it's a cantilever, in this case, nearly circular core wall. And so, story drift per se, if it was based on the rigid body rotation of what was happening below, would not be damage-causing. But story drift within a story that caused shear deformation would be damaging. So, we made a criterion for any kind of damaging uh, story drifts, and we kept below that. That was kind of the principal criterion, and that interpretation of the criterion was important, and that allowed... Pretty efficient design considering the extreme demands on the structure. One of the other things that then became the question of how do you make this design extremely reliable but also efficient is what do you do with the overturning forces? So you got this tower, it's tall, it's slender, and you clearly have overturning. You have to bring that overturning down to the base and you have to design a foundation. Foundation is not on great soil out at the site. Layers of bay mud hundreds of feet down before you get to the Franciscan bedrock. But also a challenge was that any foundation excavation and material removal was costly. And it was costly because the soil that had to be removed had to be disposed of properly because of contaminants. You wanted to be careful about how you did the foundation. And there were sort of two ways to do it. So it's a control tower, and it comes down into a three-story base building. They called that the integrated facility. FAA has offices there and so forth. And the way the architecture worked out, this this tower came through kind of in the middle of the building. So do you bring the tower down and keep it separated from the building, or do you bring the tower down and connect it integrally to the base building, the three-story base building? Those who have worked on tall towers know there's a thing called the backstay effect. And when a tall tower comes into a wider base building, it kind of pries against it like a crowbar, it can create extreme forces. And so the roof of the base building, three stories up, would have to try to resist those forces. And if it could, it could distribute that overturning out to the whole footprint of the building instead of into a smaller footprint of just the tower. But the challenge there is those forces get huge. And so that third floor roof is acting as a diaphragm, in-plane forces, we call it a roof diaphragm. And that wasn't looking very good in the calculations. And neither was bringing the tower down and having a separation joint, right? First of all, the separation joint is always a pain in the neck to design. But then you're coming down on a smaller footprint, closer cluster of piles, deeper mat, and pile cap, and so forth one day, my engineer, Lawrence Burkett, and I were, were thinking about this. And I said, well, what if we limit the force and we do a solution that's in between those two? And what we ended up doing was we were radiating four spokes out of the tower into that roof diaphragm. And those four spokes, we thought about using fluid viscous dampers, which is like a shock absorber type of device. But we instead used buckling restrained braces. And a buckling restrained brace is a brace that'll take equal tension and compression. And it's a brace that's designed for controlled nonlinear behavior. So it hits its maximum force and it's going to continue to displace. It's going to be ductile. It's not going to create any more force. So those braces protected the roof diaphragm and we called it a controlled backstay. It would backstay into the whole base building, but we would carefully control the force that it could deliver. And that worked uh, very well. It worked extremely well, and everybody was happy with it. So it was tricky. I mean, the, the building itself, you know, the architecture was very important to San Francisco Airport. Some air traffic control towers are sitting way out in the field somewhere, This one is right up on the drive, right? And if you're on the air train system or if you're driving to drop someone off, you go right by it. When you go from Terminal 1 to Terminal 2, you pass right by the tower. You're inside the base building of the tower in the public space, and you look up through the skylight, you can see the tower. All of those things were happening. We had, in my opinion, wonderful architecture, very high structural engineering demands, earthquake, wind, and so forth. And then the challenge of getting approval for the process of uh, non-prescriptive design or performance-based design.
3: That's what amazes me about engineering, and even with performance-based design, is you have these unique challenges and how you come up with those solutions. It seems like the code, you know, can limit us at times, but that's why we get into performance-based design. So, just to summarize from what I heard for the SFO Tower, one unique way to get that fully operational objective. So if a major earthquake hits, it's going to be fully operational. One way to achieve that was to go with a post-tensioning, self-centering shear wall system. And for those of you that have worked in structural engineering, you know, that's not in the code. You can't just pick that system, right, from the ASCE and say, give it an R of of 8 or whatever. This is something that you need to do specifically for performance-based design. You need to model it and make sure it does self-center. Is that correct, Joe, in terms of that type of analysis for that type of system?
2: That's exactly correct. And the interesting thing about that is we used a direct to nonlinear approach here. In the hotel building guidelines, they ask you to do the traditional linear analysis and then do the nonlinear analysis. And that can be important in the sense that you are taking exception to prescriptive requirements. So, You need to do some amount of work on what the prescriptive requirements are to identify what you're taking exception to and what you therefore need to justify with peer review and so forth. As we've been involved in more and more projects with nonlinear analysis, and this was our opinion, you know, eight years ago or whatever, when we were doing this work, or I guess 10 years ago, the linear analysis will mislead you more than it will help you sometimes. And so we started with like a stick model And nonlinear properties and recentering properties. And we said, let's hit it with some earthquakes. We didn't even have the final earthquakes yet, but let's hit it with some earthquakes and see what it does. Let's see how strong we need to make this thing. And let's see what the wall thickness of the core needs to be. In the end, it was actually a very simple structure. We said, we want this thing to have its nonlinear behavior in flexure of the wall. We want that nonlinear behavior to happen right above the roof because we're taking up this backstay, that, that force-limiting backstay is like the pivoting point. So the natural place that this tower wants to have its nonlinear behavior is right above that third floor roof. And we said, how strong should we make it? And rather than running a, non, a linear analysis and dividing by an R factor that was you know, devised in a smoke-filled room, as, as we know, again, I was working with Lawrence Burkett and I said, hey, Lawrence, let's try putting in 1% steel. That was number nine spaced evenly around the the perimeter. And we're like, yeah, that looks good. Drifts look good. That works. And let's try this amount of post-tension mean stress, you know? And so that all seemed to work. And then then we built out the model and we made it three-dimensional and we put the base building aspects of the model in there. But we kind of, from the very beginning, we stayed with that. We said 1% steel in the plastic hinge zone. Let's look at how much shear that puts in the wall. Let's look at the displacements. Let's make sure it recenters. centers Let's look at the force it delivers to the foundation. To this day, I don't know, you know, <laughs> what R factor. I do know that when you do a nonlinear design and you back calculate the effective R factor, it ends up being a more conservative and lower R factor than what's in the code. So this is probably something like an R of 4 or something like that. When you, if you did like a pushover and you found the actual strength and decided divided by the, the code demands and so forth. So that was pretty interesting. And then we followed this capacity design intention. We want to know exactly how this thing performs. We want to know where it yields, where the strain is. And we want to make sure that it doesn't yield where it's not supposed to. We had an 18-inch wall. I think a 16-inch wall might've worked, but I think we stayed with 18-inch wall with 1% steel at the plastic hinge region. Below that, we really wanted everything to stay elastic. We went to a 30-inch wall. And so everything below that hinge zone in the 30-inch wall is gonna stay elastic. It's gonna deliver loads to the foundation. The wall stays 18 inches up towards the top, And then at the very top, you know, it's got this flared shape and that's all built with steel. And we sort of figured out how that all works. That all stays elastic. Here's the interesting thing. We said, you know, it's about 30 feet in diameter. We want it to yield over, say, 20 feet of height. We get up, we go with our number nine bars. And after 20 feet of height, we change them to number 10 bars. So we actually increase the reinforcement higher up. And then eventually, it's really not until you get about 60% of the way up that you really want to taper off the reinforcement. But that idea of having a zone of number nine bars, 1% steel, that's where all the yielding is going to happen. And that's how we designed it.
3: It's going beyond what the, and for those of you that don't know, like all those codes that we use for for prescriptive design, those are like what you said, many years old when we didn't have these complex computer softwares that can allow us to do these things. And Yeah, I think one of the biggest differences is with this computer software where we can actually model the actual behavior, the nonlinear behavior of our materials, that allows us to do a lot of these creative things, these creative solutions that we can't usually get with our typical prescriptive design. It still goes back to the code. Using this performance-based design softwares, we can, basically, what you were saying was, hey, using this software, look, we can control where the yielding points are. We can control how much it drifts. And that's meeting the intent of the code, even though it's not in the code. That's what I'm getting from it, like all these creative solutions. But essentially, the whole point is to meet the code. But our proof is this performance-based design analysis to show you how the building actually behaves.
2: That's right. It should also be said that a nonlinear response history analysis, while it tells you infinitely more than the approximate and indirect methods of linear analysis, whether static or linear dynamic response spectrum analysis, it doesn't account for everything perfectly. One of the issues in tall concrete buildings is that we really don't trust designs that show distributed yielding in many heights over the building. Tests of things that are supposed to yield at exactly the same force, one of them starts to yield first, and most of the strain will go into that one location. And the reason is that when we build our model, every element of concrete and every element of steel, we assume, has the same strength, right? In reality, some of it's going to be a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker, but then there's another thing that happens and that there's bond slip between the reinforcement and the concrete. Those aspects, the variability and strength and the bond slip mean that there are some things that come out of our nonlinear analysis that we need to examine and make sure they're being realistic. And this, again, goes back to, you know, this New Zealand concept of capacity design, know exactly where your yielding is and take control. You tell the structure what to do as opposed to, you know, having it be something of a matter of chance.
1: That's great feedback, especially for our engineers who may not be familiar with the differences between linear and nonlinear, but also maybe some of the pros and cons of both. Joe, to end up here, we've gotten a lot of information and you've mentioned for this, specifically this tower, you worked on the 45% and then you were the review engineer. Do you have any final advice for engineers considering a career in structural engineering, but also a path like yours where you are now working on, as you mentioned, the hard problems, you know, the problems that require more than a prescriptive design?
2: I recommend that you work on the easy problems if you're owning a structural engineering firm. I recommend that you think inside the box. It's actually very fun to have a firm where we do outside the box stuff. We might make our lives easier if we you know, design something more than once instead of always doing something brand new, but we do like working outside the box. And you know, the people that want to do that kind of work have been drawn to our firm. So we've got a great team that's suited to that kind
1: of work. Thank you so much, Joe, for your time today. It was great hearing from you. And I know a lot of our listeners will really appreciate your in-depth analysis on the SFO Tower. It's great to hear your perspective.
3: And I just had like one last comment for me. It's um, all this stuff takes me back to grad school at, at UC San Diego. So this was
2: like a great... So you were you you indoctrinated. Do you work with Jose? Jose Restrepo?
3: Oh, yeah. He was my professor. Yeah, I'll never forget him. He definitely taught me a lot, his class and. All this with this, because at my work, I don't work on a daily basis with performance-based design. It does get more specialized, even if the firm does it. So for me, this was really interesting, and like going back to these concepts, it was uh, great. And it's cool to see that it's this stuff is being used in the industry. If this is something that interests you, you know, for our listeners out there getting into the nonlinear analysis stuff, definitely going to grad school and getting your master's or your PhD. If this stuff really interests you, that thing, those are the schools that you should look to go to where they do dive into this because it is being used in the industry, as you can see with a Joe's firm. So it's definitely interesting.
2: So the other thing to say about the, the tower is that Walter P. Moore is the structural engineer of record. We peer reviewed their work. We felt it important that they did their own independent analysis model. We let them use ours to to look at their preliminary design, but in the end, they had to create a fully independent analysis model because I think that's the way analysis models work. You have to trust your own model. And the other things to say about the project, you know, we enjoyed doing the peer review work with Walter P. Moore and the project won excellence in engineering awards first locally in Northern California and then statewide in California. And then nationally, national excellence in engineering award and was on the cover of structural engineering magazine. So that was all cool. And the other very cool thing about it was after it was built and after they got the equipment in for the controllers, but before they sealed it off to the public, I got to go up to the top of it with my two boys and with my team, Lawrence Burkett and Molly Sito, And we all, we all got to visit. The views were great.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Joe. It
2: was good talking to you guys.
3: I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit StructuralEngineeringChannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 75, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors.
0: The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.